that question in our minds, we want to go ahead and if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be reading there shortly, Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. It is so good to be here at Burton Memorial once again, and it's very unusual during this furlough that I'm at a church where the pastor and some of the members have been to Malawi more recently than I have. So um, it's great to be at a church that has so, over the last four years that we've been in Malawi, have embraced our family, embraced the ministry that God has called us to, and really has poured your heart and your souls into uh, partnering with us so that being here this morning feels a little bit like a family reunion of sorts, even though we've never you know, attended this church regularly and we're not from this area, and yet you have made us feel like a part of your family. And so we're so thankful for Burton and, uh, and thankful for Pastor Dallas and Leah and everything they have done to foster that relationship that we hope will just grow and grow, especially as um, hopefully COVID is calming down and now Dallas can come a little more regularly and some of you can join him in Malawi. You know, we have been in Malawi for four years. July 2018 is when we moved ourselves, our five kids, our dog to Zomba, Malawi, and we have been there partnering with about 170 Baptist churches in the country of Malawi, 18 Baptist churches just across the borders in Mozambique, and we do those three things you saw in the video. We plant churches, we teach their leaders, and we serve with compassion the needs around us. And we've been giving our lives to that the last four years, and as we look ahead into the next four years, we see ways that we want to expand how we do those things. We want to plant churches specifically by sending Malawians as missionaries to the unreached people groups, especially across the border in Mozambique. We want to increase the ways that we teach leaders, both through a partnership program with a U.S. Bible college, so that some of our English speakers, our best and our brightest graduates of Shepherd's Academy, will be able to do online education and get associates and maybe even bachelor's degrees through a Bible college in the United States and become greater leaders in the mission and in the churches around us. We are looking at ways to start a publishing and media ministry, both digital and print media, to get uh, uh, Chichewa language resources in the hands of people across Malawi so that they can have some of the rich biblical resources that we are so blessed with in a country like the United States. And we want to see other ways that we serve people with needs beyond just the medical clinics because there are so many needs in a developing country in Malawi. So we have worked hard and and we're looking forward to working even harder the next four years when we return to Malawi in January. And, uh, And we have just been so blessed serving in Malawi the last four years. You know, any ministry that you do, whether it's as a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, or, or just the person handing out the bulletins, uh, you are often more blessed 
in the serving, then it feels like sometimes people are receiving from you. And that's been the case for us in Malawi, as I think of the men, especially the pastors and students that we get to serve. We are just so incredibly blessed by them and their example in Christ. And one of those young men is a young man named Patrick Matope. Uh, You may have heard of Patrick if you read the newsletters from time to time. And uh, Patrick, he was called, maybe he was about 20 or 21 years old, when he was called to pastor the little church in his village. That church was was uh, founded by Pastor Donald, which some of you are aware of, and I know uh, Dallas is aware of. Donald saw the need for a Bible-preaching church in this village. He went and he started this church. He began to disciple this young man named Patrick, and eventually Patrick was called to be the pastor of this church. And he began coming to our pastor trainings that happened three times a year, and he grew in his understanding of the Bible. He grew in his sense of urgency for the gospel. And so what he did is he saved up his own money and he purchased a motorcycle. And with this motorcycle, he began going to the district north of him, which is Machinga District. And Machinga District is primarily Muslim. And so Patrick began taking these trips up to Machinga District preaching the gospel there among the Muslims, and he, he saw resistance as some of the Muslim leaders, the imams and sheikhs, would chase him out of villages. They would warn people ahead of time, saying that if you saw this person on the motorcycle who's preaching, don't listen to him. And yet, over the past three years, Patrick, because of his commitment to the gospel, has started three churches in Machinga District. But he's also paid a price personally. He comes from a family where both of his grandfathers are witch doctors. It was assumed from the time that he was very young, from about the time he was 10 years old, they began initiating him into the family business, into these demonic rites and practices. And they assumed he would take on that business, but he became a pastor instead. And at first, his grandfathers were okay with the fact he became a pastor because from their perspective, it was just another good way to make money. That was until about a year and a half ago. Patrick's mother became ill. They began taking her to the hospital in Zomba. They began seeing several different physicians there, and every time a physician would give some sort of treatment, they'd go back, they'd try it, nothing would work. And so finally, the family came together and had a family meeting, and they decided that they were going to pool their money together. And with their money pooled together, they were going to hire the most powerful witch doctor they knew of in southern Malawi. Patrick refused to make a contribution. He also refused to participate even in the ceremonies that were going to be taking place there on the family compound where all of the family members live. And as a result, Patrick's own family chased him and his wife and his six-month-old child away from their home, away from their fields, away from their livelihood, away from everything they knew. When I finally got to sit down with Patrick, I asked him this question. How did you make the decision to leave everything 
in order to stay faithful to Jesus. And this is what he said. That was not a decision that I made in that moment. That was a decision that I had made long ago, and this was just the consequences of that decision. When I look at Patrick and I look at his life and everything that he has lost for Jesus, when I look at the lives of others who could tell similar stories, it's me that's challenged. What am I willing to give? What am I willing to waste? What am I willing to throw away for Jesus? This morning in Matthew chapter 26, we want to see another example of a woman who gave everything in order to show how valuable Jesus was to her. A story that I know will be familiar to many of us, but hopefully we will see it from a slightly different angle this morning. Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to read from verses 6 to 13 in the English Standard Version this morning. The word of the Lord says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, She has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak this morning and that we would receive your word with humble hearts. We know that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words from Matthew is here among us this morning, and that he has something to speak to every man, woman, and child that is sitting here today. And so, Father, we just humble ourselves and prepare ourselves to receive your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. The Gospel of Matthew is a Gospel of mission. And of course, if you think about mission and you think about Matthew, probably the first thing that comes to your mind is the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28. I know that I memorized those verses from the time I was probably four or five years old as a kid at Hardin Baptist Church in Hardin, Kentucky, where we learned that Jesus said, all authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth. And he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. And then he made the promise, right? And behold, actually when I was a kid we said, and lo. We didn't know what lo meant. Apparently it meant behold. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end 
of the age. But if you think that mission just pops up out of nowhere in the last three verses of Matthew, you haven't been reading Matthew very carefully because mission is all throughout the book of Matthew. It's all the way back in Matthew chapter 1 where we get the family tree of Jesus, which not only consists of Israelite men running from Abraham to David to Jesus, but includes four women, four Gentile women, giving us the first hint that the child that's going to be born from this family is not just a savior for Israel, but is a savior for the entire world. We see it in chapter 2, where Jesus, the child Jesus, is worshipped not by the priests and the scribes from Jerusalem, not by King Herod, but by Magi, by these wise men who have come all the way from the Persian Empire in the east, who they, the Gentiles, are the ones who bow down in worship before the child Jesus. We see it in chapter 3, where John the Baptist says to the scribes and the Pharisees that if God wants to, he is able even to make children for Abraham out of the stones, which is a hint that he is about to do something that will seem even more miraculous to their minds. He's going to make children for Abraham out of the Gentiles who are worshiping false gods around the world. We could go chapter by chapter. We could focus this morning on Matthew chapter 24, 14, where we get the promise, not the command, but the promise that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, will be proclaimed to all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But of all the mentions of mission in Matthew, I think it's here in chapter 26, verse 13, that I find the most curious, the most intriguing, where Jesus makes this commendation, makes this prediction, that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. What's the connection? What is the connection that Jesus is making between the mission and what this woman has done? Of all the things that people did for Jesus in his earthly life, all the acts of love and thanksgiving and devotion, what is it about what this woman has done in particular that gets this commendation that connects what she has done to the mission that he is about to give his disciples in chapter 28? We're in Bethany. You know Bethany. This village two miles east of Jerusalem, right? This village, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this village where Jesus would often stay when he would visit Jerusalem, and here he is in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. We know nothing else about Simon the leper, except that he had a house 
in Bethany, and at this time, Jesus is there at a banquet. Maybe Jesus had healed Simon of his leprosy, and this banquet was a way of thanking Jesus and celebrating what God had done for Simon. We don't know. That's just uh, using our imagination. But we do know that Jesus is there two miles east of Jerusalem in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, and in walks a woman. And in her hands is an alabaster flask. Alabaster is this white stone that looks like marble, but is much softer than marble. It is mined in Egypt. And because it was a soft, beautiful stone, they were able to chisel it into all sorts of containers like this flask. And it was a beautiful container that would be worthy of of holding something that was very valuable. And inside this container, Matthew says, is very expensive ointment. The Gospel of Mark tells us more about this ointment. Mark tells us that this ointment was made out of pure nard. Anybody wearing some pure nard this morning? Dallas, did you dab on some nard before coming to church this morning? Decide to skip the shower, just apply some extra nard? I didn't know what nard was. I had to get my Bible dictionary, look up what nard is. Nard is an ointment that is made out of the roots of a flower that grows in the Himalayan mountains of Nepal. So here we are, two miles east of Jerusalem, and this woman has in her hands a flask that comes from a stone mined in Egypt, and inside is an ointment that comes from the roots of a flower that grows in the Himalayan mountains of Nepal. And you understand this. You understand this because of gas prices, right? The farther something has to travel, right? The more expensive it gets, amen? And so this is something that has traveled either by caravan across the deserts of Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq to the land of Israel, or by ship through the Indian Ocean. Either way, this is something that is very expensive. In fact, Mark tells us that it is worth 300 denarii. One denarius is what your average laborer would make on the construction site or the farm for one day's labor. So 300 is the equivalent of the year's salary for the average Joe. So this is not gas station perfume. This is not even something you can buy from Macy's. This is something incredibly expensive. And why would she have this? Is she a wealthy woman and she's just got 50 of these back at home, so she's just going to spare one for Jesus? Probably not. You have to understand that during this day and time, banks were not yet FDIC insured. So they were not a very safe place to put your money. And so what people would do is they would take their savings and they would put it into an object like this that could be easily hidden, easily safeguarded, but not only that, something that would maintain and hold its value. 
So that as inflation occurred and the currency lost its value, this object that was so precious, so valuable, would maintain value in the market so that as any time there was a need, there was an emergency, this could be taken, it could be sold, and the worth of the money would be maintained so that they could meet the need that they have. And so what does this represent to this woman? This represents everything to her. This is her emergency fund. This is her security. This is her peace of mind. This is what she probably thinks about when she wakes up in the middle of the night and can't go to sleep because she's worrying about what might happen. She reassures herself by knowing that she has this to take care of her. When the disaster comes, when the disease And yet she takes it, and she walks into the home of Simon the leper, and she pours it out, anointing the head of Jesus. Why does she do this? This is her profession of faith. In this act, she is identifying who she believes Jesus to be. Jesus is the anointed one. He is, in Hebrew, the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ. He is the one, she is saying, that we have been waiting for. The one from the time she was a little girl in synagogue, hearing the law and the prophets read, being told that one day a son of David is going to come. One day a king like David is going to reign. One day there will be peace and there will be victory and there will be joy and everything wrong will be made right. And she looks at Jesus and she says, it's him. And she shows her faith. She demonstrates her faith by identifying him as the anointed. And what do the disciples do? They criticize her. Why this waste? Isn't it interesting that sometimes when someone makes a great sacrifice, For the Lord, it's the people in the church that are more critical than the people in the world. Why this waste? Of course, they have their reasons. They have their logic, right? This could have been sold. And imagine, imagine everything we could have done for the poor if we had that kind of money. 300 denarii. Imagine all the orphans we could have clothed, all the widows we could have fed, all the homeless we could have housed if we had a mercy ministry budget of 300 denarii. Says Jesus, aware of this, it's not really clear if this was his divine awareness or or if he overheard what they were saying, or like it is sometimes when you're a pastor and some people in the church are having one of those holy huddles, you know what they're talking about, even though you don't know what they're talking about. Somehow, Jesus knows exactly what there is on their minds, is on their hearts, and Jesus, aware of this, he, he corrects the disciples while he commends the woman. 
They called it a waste. Jesus calls it a beautiful thing. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Why are you troubling this woman? And then Jesus explains himself. You always have the poor with you. We live in a broken world, a world that has been broken by sin. And there will never be a utopia in this world until Jesus comes back and he makes all things new. The poor you will always have with you. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't care for the poor. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have mercy upon people in need. But what it means is we have to have our priorities straight. The poor you have with you, but me, you do not always have with you. So Jesus puts himself above the poor in the level of priority. And then he adds this piece of information. She has actually done this to prepare me for burial. That's some new information. And it makes sense here in Matthew because Matthew puts this story right where he does right after two other bits of information in verses 1 to 5. In verses 1 to 3, we get Jesus' prophecy, where Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and when I get to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify the Son of Man. And then, in verses 3 to 5, we get the leaders in Jerusalem plotting and planning to do exactly what Jesus just prophesied they're going to do. They get together, they say, we have to kill Jesus. There's just one little wrinkle we have to iron out. Somehow we've got to do it secretly. Somehow we've got to do it with stealth so that we don't have a riot on our hands. Now, I don't know if this woman, as a, someone who's been following Jesus, was there when Jesus made the prophecy. But you can just imagine that even if she wasn't there, this was something the followers of Jesus were whispering about, discussing. Did you hear what the rabbi said? What does that mean? And we, of course, see in the Gospels the confusion, especially among the twelve, the confusion about what does it mean that Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah, we thought he was the king, we thought he was coming to Jerusalem with an agenda, and now he has been crucified, and they're wrestling with understanding how all of this fits together. But this woman, I'm not saying she understood everything we know about the crucifixion, everything we know, because we have like the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians that helps us to understand that Jesus' death was a sacrificial atoning offering for our sins. But I think at least what she's doing is she's saying, I trust you. This is right. Maybe I don't understand it, but I trust you. That if this is the way to peace and to victory, if this is what Jesus says must happen, then I accept this on faith that Jesus is still the Messiah for me, even if he has to be buried. And so she takes everything she has and she 
gives it to Jesus, and Jesus says that we're going to be talking about what she's done wherever the gospel is proclaimed. And what has she done? She has simply loved Jesus with everything. But she has loved Jesus as Jesus has revealed himself to be. The main point of this sermon is a very simple main point. Some of the kids here will be able to remind the adults at lunch today what the sermon was about because the main point is only two words. Love Jesus. That's the point. Love Jesus. We've been in Malawi for four years. Life in Malawi can be somewhat difficult. Of course, I think Dallas got a taste of that with the electricity and the water and all of the things that we face. We usually go about six to eight hours every day without electricity. We uh, went six weeks once without running water in our home. Uh, we're sick a lot of the times. We have parasites and all kinds of, of problems like that. But of course, the last two years, it's just been COVID has been the hardest thing of all, especially as we didn't get to see family as much as we wanted to because of the travel restrictions that were in place. I went three years without seeing my parents. Of course, they didn't really care about not seeing me. It was the grandkids they were more concerned about. Uh, And during that time, the grandkids went from being about this tall to this tall, So it was a a lot going on in their lives at the time. But sometimes when someone gets a sense of how difficult our life can be, they'll ask one of these questions. Why do you stay? Or how do you stay? When I first started getting those questions, I would answer those questions with reference to my calling and my wife's calling. God has called us to live in Malawi. God has called us to serve here in Malawi. But the longer that I serve in Malawi, the more I come to realize that that answer will never cut it. It it just isn't enough. Because if I'm going to stay in Malawi out of duty, Because that's where I'm supposed to be. I'm not going to stay in Malawi. I'm going to pack my bags. I'm going to be back here in Kentucky in 48 hours. Because duty will not keep me where I am. This woman reminds me of why I stay and why I do what I do. It's because I love Jesus. That's what keeps me where I am. That's what keeps us doing what we do. We love Jesus. And in fact, what she teaches us is the very simple truth that the mission itself, the mission that God gives to his church is first and foremost to love Jesus. That's the mission. Yes, the mission is to preach the gospel. Yes, the mission is to plant churches, to teach leaders, to serve with compassion the poor and needy around us. But the mission is first and foremost to love Jesus. There's a huge difference between preaching the gospel, 
because you're supposed to preach the gospel, preaching the gospel because you love Jesus. We don't plant churches because we're supposed to plant churches. We plant churches because we love Jesus. We teach leaders because we love Jesus. We serve the poor because we love Jesus. That's the connection between the mission and what this woman has done. Jesus and Matthew, as he's putting this story together, knows that if we're going to obey the great commission of Matthew 28, it's going to take the great devotion of Matthew 26. Sometimes Stacy makes up these honeydew lists. You have that problem. Last week I told this story and a woman actually hit her husband in the service. So let's not have any domestic violence here at Burton Memorial this morning. Sometimes she makes these lists and I try to avoid it as much as possible, but eventually you've got to fix the leaky pipe, you've got to hang the picture, you've got to move the flowers from this place to this place, even though they're happy here. For some reason, they're going to be better off over here. And so whenever that occurs, I will go and get the tools that I need for the job. And because I've got five kids, I will call one of my children to come and help me with the task. And I'm going to give away one of my secrets here this morning because they're with me this morning. The truth is, I don't really need their help. The truth is that if I just went and I did the job by myself, I would get that job done a lot quicker, a lot easier if I just did it. But I call one of my kids to help me. Why do I call my kids to help me with the job? Because when I was a kid, my dad would call me to help him. And so I grew up cutting trees with my dad or fixing fence rows, or tinkering on tractors and trucks with my dad. And it was in those moments of shared work, even as I knew, even as a child, I was slowing him down. I knew that I felt in the way. It was in those moments of shared work that our relationship grew to be what it is today so that my dad is one of my best friends in the entire world. I think you understand this because you've got a good pastor who teaches you the Word of God. We believe that God is omnipotent, right? He's all-powerful. And if that's true, then it's also true that God does not need, that's the important word, God does not need us to proclaim the gospel. He could have done it however he wanted to, right? If God had wanted to, in a moment, put the gospel directly into the minds of the billions of people around the world in just a split second, he could do that, right? He has the power. He has the ability. But he didn't do it that way. Instead, he has invited us into his work. 
Why has he invited us into his work? It's not because he doesn't have the ability to do it. It's because in the work, that's where our relationship with him, our love for Christ is going to be expressed and is going to grow to what it needs to become. The mission is first and foremost about loving Jesus, and it is our love for Jesus that then motivates us and pushes us to proclaim the gospel, plant churches, go to the ends of the earth so that all people hear about Jesus. That's the mission. But if we're going to love Jesus, we have to love Jesus as he has revealed himself to be. We could conjure up a Jesus that would be appealing in some way to our American culture. I could create a Jesus that would be appealing to Malawians that they would want to believe in from a fleshly perspective, but instead we must proclaim and love Jesus as he revealed himself to be. And that Jesus is a Jesus that runs against the grain of every culture because it is a Jesus that came here to die, that came here to sacrifice himself, a Jesus that didn't march in with the armies that the disciples thought he was supposed to have, but a Jesus that carried the cross and died there, a Jesus that left his glory to walk in the dust that you and I walk in to be and tried in every way, just like you and I, with one exception, that he was without sin, and still he goes to the cross to die in our place, and it is through that death that he is then resurrected, ascended to heaven at this moment while you are seated here, he's seated at the right hand of God, and at any moment he will return to judge the living and the dead. The Jesus that we believe in is a Jesus. The Jesus that we must love is a Jesus that teaches us that the only way to victory is through defeat, that the only way to demonstrate love is through sacrifice. And if we're going to love a Jesus like that, it's going to demand everything from us. The only way to love a crucified Christ is to have a crucified life. This woman walks in with everything in her world, all her hopes, her dreams, all her security, her peace of mind, and she destroys it. Mark tells us she has to break this thing. It is a one-time use only, and she pours it out on Jesus, she gives everything she has. And did you notice something? Matthew does not even record her name. Oh yeah, this is happening at Simon the leper's house. We know his name, but she's just a woman, the woman, the woman. I think we're being reminded that we don't love Jesus to get something. We love Jesus because we love Jesus. We love Jesus because 
He is lovely. We love Jesus because we've never met anyone like Him. We love Jesus because there came a day in our lives where maybe we had heard the gospel preached a million times. Maybe we had grown up in Sunday school and knew all the right answers. But all of a sudden, there came a day where the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and we saw Him like it was for the first time. And we said, you can have it. You can have it all. It's all yours. And sometimes we can sit around in Sunday school in small groups and we can have these little debates about how much is a Christian supposed to give. In the Old Testament, they gave a tithe, they gave a tenth, and we're under the New Covenant. So is that still in effect for believers now, or is that just the starting point at which we give joyfully? How much are we supposed to be putting in the box or online or however we're doing it these days? And this woman reminds us that it's the wrong question. He gets everything. Yeah, you might just be putting 10% in the box, but 100% belongs to him. You might be here one day out of the week, but seven days of the week belong to him. You may give him one hour in the morning in prayer and Bible study, but 24 hours belong to him. He gets everything because he is worthy of everything, and that's what it's all about. That's what Patrick teaches us as he lost everything in order to stay faithful to Jesus, lost his own family. That's what this woman teaches us. Do you love Jesus? And what are you willing to give for him? What will you waste for him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be with the saints today here at Burton Memorial, and Lord, I thank you for their pastor and for Leah, and Lord, I just pray that you would continue to bless them in their ministry here as they serve your people wholeheartedly, and Lord, we just pray that you would take your word now, that you would plant it into the soil of our hearts so that however we walked in this morning, we would walk away prepared to live more faithfully, more in love with Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.